You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts, and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 105. Please stop looking at us as though we are not independent, that our dependency rides on the rest of the world versus just giving us access to be able to do what we need to do for ourselves. Andrea Dalzell is a registered nurse, disability advocate, and speaker. She studied biology and neuroscience in college while earning her associate's and bachelor's degrees in nursing. Andrea was told that she would never be able to become a nurse due to her disability. But then, she became the first registered nurse in a wheelchair in New York State. You may have seen her in commercials for Apple or Gillette, or know her from being Miss Wheelchair New York in 2015. She's super active over on Instagram at The Seated Nurse. I'm so excited to have Andrea on the show today. I started following her on Instagram a few months ago, and it is just a treat to welcome her to Queerology. We're talking about her story. We're talking about disability. We're talking about ableism. It is a great episode. Quick reminder that ticket prices are going up in just a couple days for September's Beyond Shame Healing Day. If you're interested in coming to this full-day online workshop to help tackle your sexual shame, now's the time to register and save some money. All of the details for that can be found over at MatthiasRoberts.com slash Healing Day. And that's all the news I've got, so let's go ahead and dive in. Andrea, hi, welcome. Thank you, hello. I am so excited to have you on Queerology today. Thanks for joining. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, so to start, this is a question I ask everyone. Uh, How do you identify and how would you say that your faith has helped form that identity? So I identify as she, her, and faith, you know what? God has been such a striving force in my life that believing in a higher power allowed me to believe in who I was, who I want to be, who I want to portray, and really, and and this is ongoing, it's not something that, you know, one day I just woke up and I'm like, I'm a woman, like, (laughs) like, you know, um, my identity kind of shifts as I grow. And I think it's supposed to be organic and shift. You're not supposed to stay stagnant in whatever it is that you're trying to achieve in your own life. Right. So faith for me grows and faith for me, you know, 
can be stagnant at points and then we're pushed into believing something deeper or pushed into, you know, having a different worldview. And I think that goes to say the same for my identity. Right now I'm she and her and my name's Andrea and I identify as a woman who loves unconditionally and maybe 30 years down the line that will change. Maybe something will shift in me. I would love to hear maybe to start some of that, the journey, like you mentioned not being stagnant with things shifting. What, how has that kind of manifested in your life? I'd I'd love to hear kind of about that. It's a very open-ended question. (laughs) Yeah. So where do I start with that, right? So I was a five-year-old child when I was diagnosed with transverse myelitis. My mom, my grandmother, my family were all very religious people. We believe in a higher being. Done. So when something like a diagnosis comes about and it cha- it transforms a person's life, the first thing my family did would be run to prayer, right? Run to the higher being. Ask why. Show us guidance. Please lead us, right? And as a five-year-old, I don't understand what's happening and I'm not fully versed in religion to say why me or why God, right? So as I got older and I'm watching other people around me within the church or within my community say, I'm going to pray for you to get better. I didn't like that feeling. It made me uncomfortable. It didn't allow me to be Andrea. It was my disability. It wasn't me. And I didn't want to be defined as my disability. I felt, I felt trapped. I felt like I wasn't going to be able to grow out of it. Like that was going to be my sole identity, right? And when you are that young and you're grappling with life changes and you're grappling with puberty and you're grappling with who you're trying to become or want to be and having a voice and what that voice is going to sound like you can't stay stagnant you can't be trapped in a box that's how rebellion happens and i didn't know anything but doctors prayer and pain and my own self-turmoil because of this box that i was kind of being put into And that's when I realized I couldn't be stagnant. And even at the young age of 9, 10, 11, before I completely stopped walking, I felt suffocated. I felt put into a box and I didn't know how to express that at the time. I mean, that's like a, that kind of, we're going to pray for you. (laughs) (laughs) That's a very particular kind of, I mean, for lack of a better word, like pity almost like it's it's like this kind of gross self-justified it just i mean you you say that and my whole body just feels kind of yucky yeah exactly because there's this need to cure me there's this need to be whole and what wholeness represents for someone who's never had to deal with a a life-changing diagnosis is being able to look like normal society because normal society doesn't include someone with a disability But people with disabilities are integrated in that. Disability doesn't exclude based on gender, based on race, based on anything. Anyone at any point in time can and will have a disability. But yet you're praying for me to walk again. You're praying that my illness doesn't take over me, but yet you're putting me in that box where my disability is all you see. So you're being put in this box at five years old, at nine years old, at 15 years old. You mentioned things started to kind of shift. I think you said around 15. 
Um, around 12. Yeah. Around 12. Okay. What, what happened? You know, I started high school. I was about to start high school and, or I don't, the timeline's a little off there, but <laughs> in that area, in that realm of time, 12, 13 years old, I'm starting high school and I'm being placed in an area of the school, the special education area. So the buses come, they pick you up from school, they take you home and then vice versa. And I would get picked on. I would get picked on heavily by the rest of the students in the school. And I'm in a regular education classroom, but because I leave 15 minutes early to catch the bus or I'm not allowed to stay for after school or I'm not allowed to socialize on certain sides of the school because I'm deemed special ed, not because I am special education, but because I'm using a wheelchair, I started to rebel. I was like, I don't want this title. I want to be able to see my friends from class. I want to be able to stay after school. I want to be able to be seen as quote unquote normal, whatever that normal was, but normal for teenagers, just being able to socialize with friends in the way they want to be able to socialize with friends. And I didn't want to take the yellow bus anymore. I wanted to um, backtrack to a little story about where the real shift came. I wanted to be able to meet my friends for breakfast at the corner store. And because I took a yellow school bus to school, you're not allowed to get off the yellow school bus and then deviate from the school. You have to go straight into the school building. I took the yellow school bus to school that morning. And as soon as the ramp hit the concrete, I was gone. I hit, I was rolling super fast to the corner. I crossed the street. I got to the corner store. I ordered a bacon, egg and cheese and got me a Nesquik and got back to school with my friends, right? And I'm being scolded the moment I walk into the door, well, roll into the door, right? The principal's there, I'm being sent to the principal's office, call my mom, tell her what's going on. You know, I'm not allowed to do that. And my mom is like, why not? Why can't I do that? And they're like, well, she has a disability. If anything happens, you know, it's a liability issue. So my mom said, okay, give her a Metro card so that I can take the bus to school, a regular, regular city bus to school. And they're like, well, that's still issues come up with that. And my mom was like, okay, you know what? Take her out of whatever this program is and let her do what she has to do. She's fine. She can do it. My mom advocated for me in that moment. So she knew already that I must have been dealing with something because she gave me the freedom that I was already searching for within a closed system setting at school. I'm not going anywhere else, right? But she gave me that freedom. And that's where the shift really happened. It was where I knew my parents had my back. And it was where I knew that I was going to have to be able to prove to the world that my disability didn't stop or define who I was going to be. It's, it's so interesting to me that you use the word rebel there like i started to rebel and then you describe literally just wanting to go to the corner store being with your friends like things that like like when you first use the word rebel like i imagined this like this kind of big thing and the things that you're describing are like just adolescence right <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you know what for me and for other people with disabilities, that's a rebellion because you're going against what society's trying to place you in. You're not allowed to get off the school bus and go to the corner store. You're not allowed 
to take the city bus because God forbid something happens to you, right? We're not allowed to be explorative in our disabilities in a world that's not made for us. So of course, for me and for everyone else, that's a rebellion. I'm rebelling against what their standards are for me because I want my own. I want the same things that my peers who are able and non, you know, they don't have physical disabilities or they know how to cope with their disabilities because they're invisible so they don't have to show it to someone, then they don't have to worry about being told that they can't go to the corner store before they go into the school building. So you start rebelling against the system that says you have to fit within this box. You have to act a certain way. You have to, I mean, it sounds like they're saying you have to be disabled in a certain way. This is what being disabled looks like. Here's what you have to do. Am I hearing that well? Like it's kind of almost like it was put on you. Like here's what a disabled person looks like. Oh, of course, a hundred percent. This stems from not only education, it stems in healthcare, it stems in societal norms. Disability is supposed to mean that you're in your home. We don't see you. And you can see that in how our education is given, how our healthcare system is done, how just walking around in society, going to the mall, do you see people with disabilities in your advertising? Right? No, you're not seeing your teachers, your social workers, your police officers, your bus drivers. No one is visibly disabled to anyone that is rolling around or walking around society. Right? We're hidden. We're not supposed to be out. Even going into a medical office, nine times out of 10, a medical office is not even accessible. Going into a hospital system, we understand that those things aren't accessible, but yet they treat people with accessibility needs. And that's the bigger thing. So you're rebelling against the system in your teenage years. What happened? I mean, were people responsive to that? Like, did people just kind of fall in line? I'm I'm guessing not. (laughs) No, (laughs) definitely not. I think that as I was a teenager and I was the first one to really be like, give me a Metro card. I'm going to take the train. I'm going to take the bus. It started to define who I wanted to be. I didn't want to be someone that was dependent on someone else to be able to get things done. So I had to find that strength. But at the same time, that's a double-edged sword because I know I'm going to need help. I can't do all these things by myself, right? So I had to really find like that even balancing line of when to ask for help and trying to play it so that me asking for help wasn't defined because of my disability. I'm not asking you for help because my disability says I need it. I'm asking for help because I'm a human being who probably can't reach the top shelf of a cupboard, just like someone who may be shorter than the average height, (laughs) right? Or, you know, if there's a curb cut that doesn't have a ramp, I'm asking you to place a ramp there so that it makes my travel easier. And it's not just my travel. Now you're adding in someone who has a walker or has a stroller or a delivery person who is carrying a cart full of boxes, right? So people did start to realize that there's a place for our voice. But at the same time, there's so much pushback. We don't have the money to do this. We don't have the the resources to be able to get this done. And it's the same excuses every single time. You mentioned kind of the medical system. And I mean, that brings up like, you haven't said this yet, but you're a nurse. Yeah, yes, I am. 
that's your day job. So, I mean, that's a world that you know intimately, like very well. I'd love to hear some of the story of how did you get into nursing? So I didn't always want to be a nurse. Uh, And the funny story goes about how that even came about with me wanting to be a lawyer when I was younger. And I used to tell my doctors that I was going to come back and sue them for all the pain that they put me through. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, (laughs) My uh, junior high school graduation, I was actually in the hospital at the time. And my doctor gave me medical clearance to leave to go to my graduation and I had to go back. And he came to my graduation and he wrote in my memory book, um, please, anything but a doctor. I mean, anything but a lawyer. Sorry. He said, please, anything but a lawyer. And it kind of stuck with me. And I said, "Okay, fine, I'll be a doctor and I'm going to cure pain. I'm going to cure all these ailments. You know, this this hope that I was going to be the cure all, the end all of cures. I'm going to have it. So it stuck with me. I studied biology in high school. I went into college studying biology. And when I was getting ready to say I'm going to go take my MCATs for medical school, I started auditing medical school classes. And in auditing that, I realized that the medical model really just looks at a person as a disease process. You're you're your diagnosis to the molecular level. That's it. That's all I see. There's some doctors that obviously transcend that, so I'm not going to put them all in a box. But That's basically what the medical model teaches. It teaches you the disease process down to the molecular level. And that's how you are seen when you come into the doctor's office with a list of symptoms. And I couldn't do that because I've already lived my life like that. I've already been told that I was never going to walk again. I've already been told that I'd never be able to do something or I'm going to live with chronic pain or I'm not going to be able to, you know, swim or anything else on a list of things that I should never be able to do. And that's when I started having conversations with other people in my life, some are nurses, and they were like, well, nursing does the holistic approach. You know, we look at the whole patient. We look at their community that they live in. We look at their environment that they're inside of, try to make sure that we are encompassing a a complete approach to healthcare. And I said, oh, that's great. And maybe subconsciously, I've never seen a nurse before. So it took me a while to actually apply to nursing school. But I took the entrance exam a year before I applied. And I applied two weeks before the deadline to the program. And three weeks after that, I found out that I had gotten accepted into nursing school out here in New York City. And then I graduated as the first nurse with a disability to go through a nursing program at our our city universities. (laughs) The first one. I mean, like when you say that, that like it's simultaneously surprising and, and not surprising in a way that's just like, hmm. Yeah, I wasn't the first nurse in a wheelchair. I'm not the first nurse in a wheelchair in the United States. But I'm the first one from my city. And that just means that I've already broken the glass ceiling for someone else. But then it also means that everything that I face to get to that point, that person is now going to face. And there's going to be people that come behind me that face the same obstacles. And why is that? Because you continue to see, not you particularly, but people continue to see disability as something that doesn't leave the home. You're not supposed to be active in society. You're supposed to be living off of SSI. And then when we are living off of SSI and SSD, we're too lazy. So then we get into the educational system and we're breaking our backs to be able to prove that we are capable and we can do it. Give us a chance. And then, no, your disability deems you not possible to do this. This may be strong language, but like, and and this will not be a revelation by any means, but like, that's a clusterfuck. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. 
like oh yeah this is this is and i'm saying it from a, a nursing standpoint from a student standpoint from a patient standpoint from a human being but this happens across every single sector in the workforce whether you're doing an administrative job you're being asked if you can do the job how are you going to be able to do the job they look at your disability as something that's going to keep you away from the desk COVID-19 has proven that we can shift from in-person to online in a snap. But these are the same things that people have been asking for for years. But because the majority now needs it, it's being given. And when the marginalized asked for it, it was too complicated to set up. The way that you're you're saying these things, like I'm hearing you say it, I can tell like like you've said these things before in a way. And as you're talking, like, I feel just just in my stomach, like, this kind of rage building. And I'm wondering, like, is that something that I'm just feeling? Or, like, is that something that, that you're just kind of continually living with? Oh, it's it's a continuous living process. This doesn't go away. I might be able to, to explain it to one person where they understand and now, okay, they're an ally, Right. And then the next day, I post something on my social media about what I'm experiencing or my own mentality to what I'm experiencing. And I'm getting the feedback of, but you are a liability, but you can't do CPR, even though I've already worked through a pandemic. I've already done this for the last two years. And if it's happening to me at the level that I'm at now, and I've already proven that I could, Could you imagine what's happening to someone whose dreams are being shattered the moment they even apply or they ask how or they reach out to a program or someone who can direct them and they're being told, no, this isn't going to work for you. It's not okay for you. Let's try a different route. Look at something else. People are continuously crushing the dreams of people with disabilities because they can't fathom someone doing something differently. And doing it just as effectively as someone who doesn't have a disability, whether it's visible or invisible. You all heard me talk about this in the intro, but I wanted to tell you a little bit more about the Beyond Shame Healing Day I'm hosting on September 12th. If you're anything like me, you grew up surrounded by shaming messages about sex and sexuality. There were lists of rules and regulations with dire warnings about what would happen if you broke them. And let's be honest, shaking off that kind of shame is hard. It often feels impossible without some help. So let's get you some help. This full-day online interactive workshop is happening Saturday, September 12th. It's going to be jam-packed with teaching and tools to help you directly interact with your shame so you can begin to move beyond it. Does that sound like something you want? Ticket prices are going up on September 1st, so reserve your spot today over at MatthiasRoberts.com slash Healing Day. And if buying a ticket doesn't feel possible for you right now, but you still want to come, go over to my website and send me a note using the Contact Me page. I'll get you set up, no questions asked. So come join me. Let's do some healing. MatthiasRoberts.com slash Healing Day. I look forward to seeing you there. You mentioned COVID and kind of the jump to online. And and like as you're talking, like what you just said, like the word like lack of or the words like lack of imagination came to my mind of, of this sense of 
there's such a lack of being able to just imagine something different until like like you said like the majority are forced to imagine something different <laughs> but there there can't be imagination on behalf of someone in a way that would make your life i, I was going to use the word better but just easier easier <laughs> just easier right we're not asking for the world we just want to have equality just give us an equal playing field. Allow us to have the opportunities that our peers have without having to jump through hoops that we can't even climb to get to. So you do a lot of advocacy work. Yes. How did you get into that? Because I, I know, you know, like on, on one hand, it's like the, I mean, I imagine, I know for me, my advocacy work around queer issues is because, because I'm queer. And so it just felt, it's like a natural thing. <laughs> and also... There's a certain level of choice. There's a certain level of burden to step into advocating for yourself and for other people like you that is, I mean, required. It's a weight to be an advocate. What has brought you into that work? So in 2010, I was diagnosed with osteomyelitis. That is a bone infection that becomes septic. I spent close to four months in a hospital battling surgeries, battling the sepsis. You know, I was literally on my deathbed and I had put in a comment, I believe on Facebook where someone saw it. I said, you know, I lost my headphones in, in the sheets of the hospital, <laughs> like, cause my headphones were white. So my sheets, the sheets were washed and my headphones with, went with it. So this young lady contacts me. She's like, oh, I'm right near that hospital. I can bring you some headphones. And I said, that's awesome. Thank you. And she comes up to my hospital room and she's this bubbly personality on wheels. And I'm like, thank you so, so much. And she starts to talk about how I'm not in the disability community as a whole. Right. And here's another major shift in my life. I went from being all about me, speaking about me, wanting to have this equal life, not worrying about the rest of the disability community, just worrying about how I was making it through. And then osteomyelitis comes and this young woman comes to save the day with some headphones so that I can pass the time. And she starts to talk about how certain things are affecting our community. And I say our community as in the disability community. And she's telling me about how we don't have fair access, how attendance is, you know, goes against us and how higher education is hard to achieve because financially it's just impossible. And she's making the disability community sound so negative, but at the same time, she's so bubbly. I can't get over it. So then she says something about Miss Wheelchair New York and it caught my ear. I said, what's Miss Wheelchair New York? She's like, oh, it's a pageant for women with disabilities and it's all about advocating. And I said, oh, okay, tell me more. And I was, and if she was gonna do it and she said she wanted to do it, but she wasn't there yet. Our friendship transformed. And in 2015, I decided to go and be Miss Wheelchair New York because I was tired of having a voice just for myself. My voice was definitely strong for me, but everything that I was doing for me could have helped someone else. Where that actual passion came from, I'm going to say it started with this young woman because she's the one that brought me into the disability community. She brought me back into seeing a community that I belong to, I can relate to, and can use to empower my voice. So why not empower right back? 
And I went on for this pageant and I became Miss Wiltshire New York 2015. And my platform was life, liberty, and the pursuit of access. <laughs> and congratulations on on winning that. Like that's that's amazing. <laughs> and so I mean, so how was that? Like so kind of jumping from this this life and this world of, of kind of being maybe more individual focused and kind of focusing like focusing on yourself, like you said, to all of a sudden kind of having this platform, working for access, working on behalf of a larger community. How has that been? What's that been like? At first, it was just trying to expand what I wanted for myself for everyone else. You know, if I want this, that means somebody else needs it too. And then it transformed even more where I was actually meeting with other people with disabilities. I wanted to go into the rehabs. I wanted to be a mentor. I wanted to know what was the thought process of people who were newly diagnosed with a life-altering diagnosis versus someone who's been born with their disability. You know, what does that progression look like? What, is, what does disability mean to them? You know, how is it that they want to be portrayed? And every single person is different. So everyone's voice is not going to be asking for the same thing. But cohesively, to live and to live without barriers is something we all want. So it really just transcended from saying, me, I need this, I would like this, to saying, no, we demand this. This is what we need in order to be successful. Please stop looking at us as though we are not independent, that our dependency rides on the rest of the world versus just giving us access to be able to do what we need to do for ourselves. There's then added kind of, you know, we're, we're now like layering things <laughs> as, as a queer person then. So not only are you disabled, you're a queer person, which adds in this whole, whole nother level of marginalization or whatever word we want to use for that. I mean, it, it adds a particularity to it. What has that been like working with your queerness alongside learning to accept yourself and, and learning to be parts of community? You know, I think that all encompassing, I wear different hats in different forums. And I wish that one hat was no bigger than the other every single day. But every single day, I need to be able to put on a face to the world because the world is not ready for a queer black woman with a disability. Okay, they're not. It's, you know, they, they don't even hear it from someone who's able, let alone someone who has a disability. You know, even though our voices are just as powerful, just as large, and our spending power is even bigger, you know, it plays a part and it. I don't hide who I am. I am private with my personal life. But I don't hide who I am. I don't deny any one of that of my identities. So when you're in a healthcare setting and someone comes in identifying as queer and you realize that their paperwork doesn't identify with them, it kind of is a slap back to me. Our paperwork doesn't say male, female, trans, male. It doesn't say anything. It doesn't give you an identity, right? And then again, healthcare being the one field that I know in and out right now, nothing pertains to studies for our community 
to ensure that we are accessing health in a manner that we need to be. So now for someone who's already marginalized with my disability, and I can say this, going into a doctor's office and them not even believing that I can have sex, that's an issue. (laughs) Because now you're not even testing me. You don't want to test me for STDs, even though I'm coming in there for that. You don't want to test me for certain ailments, even though my lifestyle might indicate that you should. You don't even know if I'm identifying as male or female or other because of your paperwork. The way we tailor or the way the healthcare system tailors the way that they address anyone who falls under queer really comes back and places a burden on someone who might have multiple different hats that they're wearing, like myself. I keep coming back to, I mean, with you saying like, I, I, I have to put on these hats. I have to put on these different faces, which like, yes, absolutely. And, and I imagine with each one of those, then like that, that costs you in another part of your life. You have to push something away, push something down. How do you kind of cope with that? How do you work with those parts of yourself? Cause I feel like, I mean, that, that's such a particular example we're talking about here, but also like this idea of putting on hats or having to put on faces in order to be acceptable in society is something that a lot of different people have to do in whatever particularities they're dealing with. So when you have to push parts of yourself away, parts of yourself down, do, I mean, in some ways even do violence to parts of yourself in order to be, in order to participate in society, how do you work with that? Oh man, I think it's... You know, that same way I said that you have to grow with your identity and your identity can shift over time. It's the same way. You have to just work with it. And it sucks that we can't just be unapologetically who we are in order to gain advancement. Because that's what society basically does. It's literally saying that you have to choose one to advance. If you choose two, okay, maybe you'll get some, some light on everything. If you choose three... Mm, you're really on touchy grounds. And if you choose four, we're really going to hide you away, right? Very few of us are able to wear all four hats and get ahead or all of our identities and say, this is who we are unapologetically and getting what we need in return. Because somewhere down the line, one of those hats, meaning one of those communities is going to say, nope, that's too much for us. And then you have to try to find an ally who's going to hold you down in all of the rest of these sub-communities. You're going to try to find someone who's going to uplift you, speak life into you, and hope to God that you don't succumb to the burden of wearing all these hats and putting on these faces. Because in all actuality, we all do it. We're all putting on a different hat in order to face a certain circumstance of the day. We put on a different voice when we answer the phone. We shake a hand differently depending on who we're shaking that hand with. We will read things that stroke our ego. And then when we go outside, we suppress that we've read that, right? Or watch that video or said something on a post that we've never really wanted to say something on. You know, all of these things that we all juggle and we all play around with all the time. It's not 
you know, just dedicated to me. Everyone does it, like you said. And it comes down to how we manage enough of our hats to be able to put together an identity we want to show the world. I know there are people who are who listen to this show who have had to work with their own life-altering diagnoses, who are really looking towards folks like you and others who are just like living openly. <laughs> I am curious what kind of advice you have for people who are just starting to work with a diagnosis or who are maybe a little bit further along but are are wondering what it looks like to be more confident, be more bold. Like, what do you have to say to those folks? Fake it to make it. Yes. <laughs> Fake it to make it. Listen, every single day is a journey. I don't wake up every day feeling the most confident person in the world. You know, I do not go throughout my day feeling like I'm the most confident person. You have to fake it to make it. One day you're going to wake up and it's going to click. And the next day that click is gone. And you have to constantly work at it. And it's not something that's easy and it sounds tiring. And I don't want to negate anyone from whatever it is that they're feeling right now in this moment. But understand that you are worthy understand that you are deserving and understand that love does not exclude you. You can understand that those three things play a major part in who you are, regardless of whatever hat that you're wearing. Then you get to start to live with confidence, even if it doesn't come every single day, even if it's not with you all throughout your day. Be loving to yourself. Understand that there's going to be hard days. Understand that tomorrow is not promised. Understand that you're going to face obstacles and that you're prepared for obstacles to come. You know that they're going to come. But today, love yourself. Don't look for love anywhere else. Love yourself. You have a new diagnosis. Get all the information that you can. Start reaching out to people, even if it's through social media. Start following people that you see that you want to imitate their life because you think that they have it together. Then mimic it. You gotta fake it to make it. You mentioned that component of loving yourself. So many people say, and it's so important. And I would love to hear, like, do you have any kind of practices, things that you do that that are ways that you kind of do that in your life? Oh, my self-love comes in so many ways. Self-love for me can just be sleeping a day away if I need to. (laughs) I am so unapologetic when it comes to me. When it's me and, and taking care of me, if I need to sleep all day, then let me sleep all day. If I need to eat a half a pint of ice cream, I'm gonna eat a half a pint of ice cream. You know, if I wanna sit in a tub and soak for two hours, that's what I'm going to do. If I want to drive around, I'm going to drive around. If I want to go sit in the park, I'm going to go sit in the park. If I need to take that day off, regardless if I'm going to get in trouble, I'm taking the day off because my mental health is worth it. No one's going to try to tell me that a job is more important than my mental health. And I know people are going to say that that is crazy. You know, people have bills to pay. You know, people can't just take off. Let me tell you something. The moment you, God forbid, leave this earth, 
They're going to have someone to fill your position tomorrow. So why not take care of you? That's all like, you know, and for the parents out there that are like, I need a break from my kids, you know, set up a whole play day in a room, two different rooms and, and have all these different activities and just lay on the couch and watch them do it. If you're going to tell me that it can't be done enlist some friends to take them to the museum while you get two hours of sleep or go to the museum with them and just stay in a corner and read a book while they explore you know plan something reach out there's always ideas there's always people willing to help you just got to ask and be unafraid to ask we're like coming up on time but like this this is the second or third time you've mentioned asking and that that like learning to ask for help which is like such a hard thing to do. It is. It's hard. <laughs> I don't, it's so hard. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to ask someone to, to help me. Nobody wants that. You want to be able to do it yourself, right? I put myself in this position. This is my diagnosis. This is what I have to live with. Okay, so other people around you aren't living with it. The friends that you choose aren't living with it. The family that says that they support you isn't living with it. Of course they are. They're dealing with it in their own ways. And trust me, they want to help you just as much, but you're too afraid to ask or you're putting out this I've got it attitude. So they're not going to ask you. How can people find your work? So uh, I'm mainly on Instagram at The Seated Nurse. No special characters there, just The Seated Nurse. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me. This has been wonderful. Thank you again for having me. Absolutely. I so appreciate your time. Be sure to go follow Andrea over on Instagram at The Seated Nurse. Queerology is on Twitter and Instagram at QueerologyPod. Or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. Queerology is made possible through support from you, its listeners. To find out how you can keep Queerology on the air by becoming an active listener, head over to patreon.com slash Matthias Roberts. A really easy way to support the show is by leaving a rating and a review. You can do that right in your podcast app or head to MatthiasRoberts.com slash review and it'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of what you want to hear in the show or just want to say hi, reach out. I'll get back to you. And until next time, y'all. Bye! You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.